Hey everyone, Tyson here. A really good episode of the i5 Corridor podcast coming up. Uh, first time Aiden and I have recorded with each other in a while, and then Connor Letourneau from the San Francisco Chronicle stops by. Uh, you may remember him as a sports writer for the Oregonian where he covered Oregon State, but uh, he then went on to do pretty awesome things covering the Golden State Warriors dynasty, and uh, we just catch up, talk a little bit about, about Pac-12 hoops, NBA and uh, that one time that Kevin Durant uh, seemed a little menacing to him in the locker room so plenty of stuff to unpack there Um, and then just a quick reminder we are currently running a spring football promo for new subscribers Uh, you can get 20% off a one-year subscription and also a seven-day free trial so if you've been listening to the podcast and are not signed up yet for the website uh, it's a really good time to uh, take that leap I, I think we've had some really good content lately and uh i am biased but i recommend it but uh yeah let's just jump right into the podcast now you're listening to the i5 corridor hosted by tyson alger and aiden schneider hey happy wednesday everyone and welcome to the i5 corridor podcast tyson alger here joined as always by Aiden I can't really say as always because sometimes I go ahead and do these things without you so I I, I do apologize Aiden but Aiden Schneider is here how are you doing man as most of the time I'm doing well how are you you know I'm not not doing too bad I mean it's been quite the monsoon have you been out kicking the last couple days it's been ridiculously rainy yeah I was uh I was out yesterday actually went over to Grant and I was hitting some kickoffs and I could only do short approaches because the ball would not stay on the tee. So is, is, it was is that part a rough of, one. Can, can you include that in part of like your film as like confident, confident in, in inclement conditions? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I don't know. Uh, it's, it makes it a bit tough to get usable film, but uh, I think growing up in Oregon, that kind of comes with the territory. Like some guys grow up in Southern California and, don't kick in anything but 85 and sunny. So yeah. it, uh, it definitely does help. All right. So we're, we're, we're going to talk a little bit of uh, spring ball here, a little bit of blazers. Um, something I did want to ask you just because it's, it's top of my mind. Have you had Matt's barbecue before? No, I haven't. I've, I've seen it on Twitter, but I haven't had it. Oh yeah. Oh no. I actually didn't. I try to take you there and they were sold out. I, Anyways, I, I just had that for lunch, and it's so damn good. Like, are, are there any, any like, spots in Portland where you're just like, if I'm having this for lunch, like, it's going to be a good day? Ooh, so I got, I got a, a little hidden gem here. Okay, so no, I'm ready for this. This, this is the good cool. stuff. So it's, it's just off Coley, right by my house, right by Albertsons. Um, and it's this little burrito place. And it's the most unassuming place ever. It's right by a little hair salon, this tiny little parking lot. Drove by it like 15 times, barely even noticed it. Uh, and I went in there one day, and it's incredible. It's kind of huh. like, almost like taquito burritos. Like they're kind of smaller, like, like, deep, like deep fried style, or just a little bit smaller. They're not not deep fried, but kind of just like smaller and longer. And oh, that so they're. Funny. Oh, they're incredible. It's called Pinches Boros. Okay. And it's amazing. There, there was, uh, when I lived, so I live in St. John's, um, but when I lived at a, in a different place, like a little closer to Fessenden, there was this, there was this incredibly rundown looking truck that looks like awfully sketchy. Um, and 
we we moved like a couple blocks from it about five or six years ago and like eventually one day i ventured over there and it was like five bucks for like a two pound burrito and they were like the best ones i've ever had and, and I'm, I'm pretty sure just from like that summer alone like you can make a direct correlation between like the 15 pounds i gained that summer and just like living within like five like you know a five minute walk of like a five dollar gut bomb oh yeah i i think there's almost a direct correlation between how broken down and unassuming a place looks and how authentic the mexican food specifically is did uh did you like spring ball oh loved it it was the best good i i love that answer because like i think maybe around like four or five years into being on the duck's feet like i i got pretty cynical about you know, it's just like, it just felt, it, it gets into kind of the calendar and it just feels like the same every time. And it's like your fifth time going into spring ball. You're like, ah, these practices don't really matter. There's no games. But um, I wrote a thing this week just about how, like, I'm pretty excited just to have just like stupid football, like coming up, like, like, like that doesn't have a whole lot riding on it. Just like new staff, new faces, guys competing. Like, I feel like it's been pretty heavy lately and, and spring is, is kind of just what you need to, to kick that off. Yeah, it's the the excitement about spring ball is definitely ratcheted up a notch when you have the new staff and you have the new storylines because you have a coach who's been in a place for four or five years. To your point, it really does just feel like the same thing. It feels like the same guys, the same coaching staff. I'm I'm sure the same answers for the media. You know, we're just we're just trying to we're trying to work on our fundamentals. All that. It's open stuff. competition. You know, you know, all the guys. Are- <laughs> exactly exactly there's kind of not a ton to get out of it really for for everyone but it's nice to get out there and and uh have everyone practicing together again but to your point about open competition i'm also i'm very curious because we know the questions that are going to be coming in for the new staff about the quarterback situation right and i think we know the answers we're going to get but i'm i'm always curious how the coaching staff will handle those questions with the media and how they'll handle it with the players themselves because okay so 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 expand on that part so obviously the coaching staff is going to get a lot of questions about the quarterback position they're going to be asked about Bo Nix transferring in they're going to be asked about Ty Thompson (laughs) we're going to get the same answers you were just mentioning we're going to get open competition we really want to see what everyone can do but as many people have speculated, it just doesn't make sense that Bo Nix would transfer to Oregon without having at least somewhat of an assurance he's going to be the starter. I know yeah. coaches don't like to promise that a lot, but I just wonder how they're going to handle that internally and what they're going to say to both those guys, especially with it, it's kind of tough for Ty Thompson given. Bo Nix has an existing relationship with the offensive coordinator. Yeah. It kind of almost feels like it puts him at a bit of a disadvantage, which is not a fun place to be. Yeah, I, I don't. And the, and the tough thing, too, is, is like Bo still have two, Bo still has two years of eligibility remaining, too. So this is kind of this kind of feels like one of those where you're choosing one of those two, because Ty Thompson, because of his profile and, and we don't we don't know if he's good or bad. We just haven't really seen him. But because of his profile, like this is a guy who would be able to probably go anywhere um, and, and get on a roster and probably attract a fair amount of NIL money as well. 
And, and so I, I don't really see him being a guy in, without knowing his personality, really, uh, that's going to want to sit on the bench the next for next two years and then only have, you know, two seasons to play. Yeah, totally. And I think that it's, it's a tough decision and it's one that's worked out for Oregon some in the past with kind of having younger guys on the roster and then bringing in an older transfer guy. Um, but I think that can also come back to bite you too, because I think there's a lot of value in having a young guy who plays early has been around the program for multiple years and carries that experience forward. Because sometimes when you have a guy who comes in for one year or two years, they might be really talented, but it almost feels like they're gone before they have a chance to really get comfortable with their teammates, with the coaching staff and really unlock their full potential in the program. I feel like this is like one of the only real instances where a team could do this too and not it and it not have like real big recruiting implications because let's say it was Chris Ball staff still and they go out and bring in Bo Nix. And then if I'm recruiting against Oregon and it's a quarterback to be like, yeah, you can go choose Oregon, but they're just going to continually bring in guys over you. Um, whereas, you know, it's a new staff, a new coordinator, you can kind of get away with like, we want to have like our guys in like first season, but it's, it's, it's a really tricky situation to navigate it, especially um, just, just the amount of things that they're having to juggle as a staff right now between like recruiting and, um, you know, just adapting to Eugene and planning practices and all that. It's, it's, it's a handful. Yeah, it is. And one other thing I wanted to hit on as well is uh, with coach Lanning's handling. Um, we know the situation with the letter from the former players and how that was, a bit of a media shitstorm around that that was completely unintended. But you're, you're just you're just pissed off that you weren't invited to to sign your name to said said letter. Well, I'll get to that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was it was very cool that Coach Lanning had a Zoom call with former players. Uh, I actually missed that, but he's also planning to do a spring game event for former players to come and meet him in person, and. That's making me feel a little more included. I wasn't part of the letter, but this helps. But I think it's, I, he seems to be doing and saying all the right things so far. And I think it's a, a very savvy move of him to get out in front of that and not just do the bare minimum and to really make that a priority. So I'm, I'm really excited to go down for that. Kind of, kind of digging into that more, like how, like, what did you want, like, what do you want as like a former player in, in that term? Like, are, are you, I, I don't see you as somebody who's just like, Oh, I haven't gotten a call from the coach yet. Like, <laughs> like, but like, like, you know, that that's a, a place that you were a part of. And, and it's obviously a, a school you care about. Like, like, like what's like, what are you looking for in, in that kind of relationship? Well, I think really just what he's done so far. So to me, the thing, the thing that I think the spirit of the letter was trying to avoid is having someone come in with a big ego who basically says like, Oh, you guys sucked. We're going to do things my way now. Um, and, and I think that was definitely the case with, with Taggart. I think to a lesser degree, maybe a little bit, that was the case it, with Cristobal it, as well. It, it, it wasn't said as out loud in Cristobal's regime, but it was definitely kind of the attitude in which they carried themselves with. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I think with, with the way Lanning's handled things so far, 
like it's great to be able to come into a school and say like they've had a lot of success here like there hasn't been national championship one here but there have been great players and great coaches who've had a lot of success and i want to build on that rather than like oh let's get all this trash out of here we're going to totally change things around here and I, i think it's a really smooth move in terms of recruiting as well um having good relationships with former players like i'm kind of just imagining recruits being at the hdc and touring the facilities and like if you have Marcus Mariota around, if you yeah. have Royce Freeman around, those NFL guys, if you have relationships with them and you want them to come back during the offseason, like that can have a big impact on kids. It I mean, it, and, and, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be like the star NFL guys right now. Like even like the local, you know, they, they can lean out. I, I'm assuming they're probably going to have, well, Michael James come in and, and drop in a few times during either like the spring or the fall. Like, like he, he's local and, um, yeah, like, I, I just think there's, there's plenty of opportunities there. And, and obviously we know that they, they can reach into their bag and bring in all, all sorts of people for, for specific recruiting ones. I, I remember during the spring game when they were trying to get DJU and they brought in, uh, Marcus Jeremiah Masoli for the first time. It, it was the first time they brought in Masoli since he was dismissed from the team. And like, there was no like acknowledge, <laughs> there was like no like acknowledging of like, Hey, like remember those that you know remember what happened what happened but and then they didn't end up landing the, the dju either but it, granted they are in contention for his younger brother so maybe this is a long play yeah maybe but didn't uh didn't he struggle at clemson i remember he, i know he played some of the year and he had a bit of a tough time yeah he wasn't as because i mean he was kind of written about in the sense of like this guy is just like the most assured thing out there and, and I think especially at Clemson where they had someone like Trevor Lawrence who was awesome from the very first pass he threw uh yeah he, he's he struggled a little bit <laughs> yeah I think it's also so interesting to me just there, there's a place for for all the all the recruiting stuff and all the rankings but it's so hard to know with so many guys especially when you're such a good athlete from a young age like once it sometimes it takes people a long time to really get pushed and really have to think and know the game well and when you're just running over kids from the time you're five until the time you're 18 such an adjustment to have to have a a more of a level playing field to deal with well and 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 that's why i uh i don't know like like recruiting or reporting is not my biggest thing and and it's not so much that I, i i don't like I have plenty of respect for the people who do it. Like it, it's a ton of work, but it's just like, it's such a crapshoot sometimes just in terms of, you know, whether it be projecting how this player is going to be or where he's going to go, you know, like going to end up. And I mean, and at the end of the day too, you're, it's just interviewing like 16 and 17 year old kids. Like half the time I, I didn't know what the hell I was doing back then. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I think that Oregon teams of the past have been an example of that of how important player development is how important the coaching staff is like you know that that 2011 team that went to the national championship versus auburn like i want i don't know off the top of my head what their recruiting class rankings were the few years before that but they can't have been that high well oregon's chip chip kelly's best ranked class ever i think was like the, the 11th best class in the country and i think that was the recruiting class after the natty 
Um, he had been in like the mid teens before that. So like, it, like, it wasn't like they were like scrapping together the, like the bottom of the barrel, but, um, yeah, it, it definitely was kind of a unique situation in college football where a team that didn't have a roster completely loaded with five stars was, was able to compete. And I think college football has gotten away from that just because schools like Alabama and Clemson and Ohio state are just collecting all of the good players. <laughs> Yeah, and it kind of feels like there's no way around that. And now with uh, for those who aren't fans of the NIL um, opportunities that are available now, I guess to be fair, NIL is kind of only accentuating the problem that was already there. But so that's, that's yeah, not going to change. That That's a good point because, like, because, because the way everything was set up, like, I'm in favor of NIL. Like, obviously, the players have been exploited for a very long time. I also agree with the people who are like, this could end up like ruining the sport. And, and like, it's, it's not the player's fault that it ends up ruining sport. It's, it's, it's the way that they released it, but yeah, it's, it's, it's just going to make the really, really, really rich a lot richer. And I think we're just going to have zero middle-class for players and, and programs in, in, in college football, uh, sports moving forward. Yeah. Like you can really see that like back during the season when we were talking about the college football playoff rankings, it just feels like there's maybe like five to six teams that have a pretty strong case to be in the mix. And then it just falls off a cliff and you'll see like number nines playing number three. And it's just like not even close from the opening kickoff. And well, and, it, uh, yeah. Yeah. Just and, be, it, it's a bit of a shame to see it go it, that way. And, and like Oregon's been and like Oregon fans have been fortunate in the perspective of like, they've always kind of at least been in the, the periphery of, of that discussion. I mean, they made it in 14 and then, um, you know, there it's, it's usually worth watching the, the, the Tuesday night rollout of the rankings because you'll see Oregon in the top 10 or so, but like still like this isn't a team that's even in the last seven years really sniffed that, 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 uh, that playoff. And I, I can't imagine what it's like for any other, other fan base. Like in the, like imagine being like a Cal or Washington state, like, you know, that maybe like you have like one year, every decade to peak and still it's just not good enough. You know, <laughs> like, like it's, it, it's, it's gotta be tough. Yeah. It seems like it would be hard to stay engaged. And I think we've talked about this before that Oregon fans have been pretty spoiled that even when things haven't been great, in the last 10 years there you don't get the feeling that Oregon's more than a year or two away from being right back in that conversation well and and one thing that did kind of um I I, I saw this in a an an Ari Wasserman column after it was announced that the that the college football wasn't going to expand and essentially he was kind of pinning it on the Pac-12 a bit because uh uh, essentially he was just saying that like, you know, there's, there's a lot of hold up about like a pointless Rose bowl football game and, and, and why that's why, you know, the PAC 12 and, and, and big 10, like holding on to like kind of the sanctity of that game is, is stupid for the sport. I'm paraphrasing here. Ari's a mu- much more, uh, uh, much more fluent than that, but uh, that, that specific line kind of like, that kind of pointed out a little bit of what I think is going wrong with this sport, because it's just like, yeah, like the Rose Bowl is not the championship, but 
I've been to two of those games. Like I've, I've seen like what those games like mean, like for at certain times for different programs, like for Utah this year, like that was such a cool moment. And, and just because like an SEC team or big 12 team can't like experience like the uniqueness of that thing. Like, I, I don't think it means like that it should just be discredited or just be like, ah, screw the Rose bowl. Like, like it doesn't mean anything. And we're like, I, I, I think that that's something that's really going to get lost in it. And, you know, down, down the road, you know, when the Rose bowl doesn't exist anymore, or it's on like the fifth or whatever. Like, I think a lot of those same people who are complaining about it standing in the way right now are going to be like, Oh, I miss like the pageantry of football and, and this and that, like, it, it just seems like we're, we're throwing away things that like mean a lot to a lot of people without really thinking about it. Oh, totally. And I've even noticed this in my own attitude towards some of the bowl games, like, you have the Rose Bowl and then you have the Alamo Bowl for the Pac-12, which the Pac-12 has its ups and downs, but like the Alamo Bowl is still a great game. It's and a it's a great bowl. It's a great bowl and it's we dismiss it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I almost do that without even thinking about it. Like I remember how good we were when we played in the Alamo Bowl. And and I find myself in the last couple of years just kind of going like, yeah, it's the Alamo Bowl. And I feel like I in, in the few years after that, like I would definitely always watch and it was exciting and there were so many great teams playing in it yeah it's we'll see where it goes i mean like there's always like a course correction so um unfortunately it just seems like the course corrections have always made things worse recently but you know we'll we'll see uh switching gears is it right to order a player's jersey if you're bigger than that player's jersey because i'm assuming you're a bigger person than Anfred and simons and i mean like i think that jersey is going to look pretty good on you right like he's a oh, small I'd, dude I'd have, he... I'd have no i'd have no problem with that at all i don't there's i've heard a lot of people with like they're like these rules for wearing some guy's jersey. Like, Todd, Todd, Todd Miles, SID at Oregon. I think his his Twitter bio is like man rules, and it's like don't wear the name of somebody else's somebody else on your back. And Todd, I love you. I've worked with you a very long time. We work with athletes like all day. Like like, how are we above not putting a name on our back? <laughs> like, like we love sports, man. Like that's sports. Like it, whatever. Oh, I'd I'd wear it if I'd wear a I'd wear a Nate Robinson jersey. I got no issue with that. It's a good player who you love. <laughs> I, I just want to. I only have I have I have two jerseys with names on it, and they're both Mariners baseball ones. I have a Felix Hernandez and a Ken Griffey Jr. And like I, I feel like I feel like especially if it's like the old retired player. Like no one should give you give you shit for wearing like an old retire like like a Cooperstown edition jersey like like who's pissed off at a baseball stadium when you see somebody in a Tony Gwynn jersey you know <laughs> yeah it's oh I I I've thought those rules are ridiculous for a while but speaking of Anthony Simons I I'll admit I I saw some of his development I thought he was going to be good I really never thought he was going to get to this level dude his little quick like quick twitch step back three like it looks like it's just like that he watched hours and hours and hours of tape tape of game like it's insane yeah it just it does and for the for the blazers to be at a point where he's playing 30 plus minutes a night on a consistent basis and the most impressive thing to me is the way he's able to do it with three-point shooting and getting to the line more 
because I feel like that's the sign of, of a great score in the NBA is when you can have those nights where you shoot 36, 38% from the field, you're not really hot, but he's still scoring like 19, 20, 22 points. And it, it just feels very sustainable the way he's doing it. I, I saw a tweet from Dwight James, who was basically highlighting the success McCollum's had down at New Orleans so far and being like, this is the guy who loved Portland. Like, why did we? And then, like, it showed, like, his offensive stats compared to Dame's. Essentially, he was trying to make make the assumption that, like, CJ is, like, as valuable or as, as good as Dame. And it's just like, come on, man. Like, 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 we've seen the difference between, like, when Dame, it's Dame versus everybody and versus CJ versus everybody. And uh, uh, the Blazers are probably still a playoff team with just Damian Lillard playing. Yeah, and... <laughs> That's also not to mention he's comparing seven games to what Dame's been doing. Yeah, yeah, nine years. I know, right? And CJ, CJ is a great player, and he's demonstrating that now. But seeing his success just makes me think it was probably the right move for him as well. I think. Oh, one hundred percent official trade. I, I, I think that's why you didn't see like, I mean, if, if you want to like roll out like how to handle a trade one hundred one, like CJ did that perfectly. Like the whole like players Tribune post, like um, you know everyone was in good graces, that sort of thing. And I think a lot of that too was probably because he knew that that was probably a better basketball situation for him. Like it's just playing with Brandon Ingram, and, and granted, he's probably never going to play with Zion. Like I don't think Zion plays another game for New Orleans, but uh, no, yeah, no. I, I think I think it was just a best case scenario for everyone and while it was a fun little streak when uh you know the blazers made the trade and they won a few games out of out of the gate uh this is a team that we're probably going to want to see lose a lot of games here for the next month or two yeah it was so funny that right after the trade we went on a little run we beat memphis who's playing great basketball in memphis and people people were starting to say again That's a portland just, thing just three to four <laughs> games in but i love these dudes we, we stop do we stop the tank? Do we bring Dame back for the playoffs? Yeah. Like, I love just the little, like, the three-game analysis. We're like, all right, no, plans are off. We're, we're bringing Dame but, back. We're making a run at the finals. But I, I think that just shows, like, how hungry and solid of, like, a basketball market, like, Portland wants to be. It's just, like, no, nobody wants to just not care and, and, and just, like, bleed out the rest of this season and, and even though it makes you better like like everyone's like oh hell yeah like three wins in five games here we go bring it on bring it on steph bring it on clay western Conference back, finals. here we go <laughs> yeah and there's uh and there's been some cool stories like everyone's talking about the anthony simon story um but coming out of this tank also there's just a lot of guys who would not be getting minutes on the blazers if they hadn't made some of those trades and hadn't been trying to tank for better draft position. And like Trendon Watford is, is an undrafted rookie who would, you know, maybe be getting four or five minutes here and there on a playoff team uh, in garbage time, but he's been able to get on the court for 15, 20 minutes and he's brought great energy and the Blazers just um, upgraded his two-way contract to a full four-year, $6 million deal, which is amazing. How many, uh, how many of your former teammates got picked up in the USFL thing? I saw, I saw Cameron Hunt. Um, I think like five, four, five. Four or five. Something like that. Bryson we'll, Young. We'll, we'll keep an eye on some of those guys as, as, this, as the season goes on. 
and I'm, 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 I'm just waiting to lose my podcast host because I'm going to speak for you here. They do a whole draft and only like three kickers get taken. And like, they're wanting to use half of them as punters too. Like, that's not going to work. Like, if you're going to do a league, do it well from the start, bring in Aiden Schneider, win a championship, be on the number one podcast of St. John's Portland, Oregon. Like it's just, it's just short sighted marketing and team building. That just really pisses me off. Do, do they have a, do they have a top 10 podcast in St. John's on a bulletin board somewhere? <laughs> Yeah, that, probably it, it, it's probably uh like three dog walking ones uh a a, a larping uh. <laughs> so there's is there much larping uh by you uh seen it occasion uh on occasion down in like the cathedral park um oh yeah you you, you see a lot more uh there's a guy that i just call bubble guy and he's just got this huge you know huge <laughs> ring and he's just making these massive bubbles all over the park you know, it's, it's, you find your purpose and you go out and do it. And sometimes that's blowing <laughs> bubbles at Cathedral Park. Yeah. So there was this, there was this one time, I'll never forget this. I didn't really know what LARPing was. And since then, I've seen the movie Role Models. Fantastic great, movie. Great, for, uh, great learning about LARPing. Yeah. But uh, I had a, a club soccer game in high school down at Portland State. And I showed up a little earlier than normal. And it was just me and a couple of my teammates there. And like the soccer goals weren't out yet. So we had to go get them and start help setting the field up. And people were LARPing right just all over the field. And I didn't know what it was. And they were just hitting each other with these foam swords. And I just, <laughs> I just thought to myself, like, do, do people do this? Has this like always been happening? And I've never seen it before, but uh, I haven't seen a whole lot of people doing it since then. I, I feel like the tide has really shifted too, in the sense of if I would have, I probably saw that for the first time in high school and it was like, a, ha, 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 like, look at the, like, look at these losers sort of thing. But now I've come around to the point where it's just like, I mean, I could totally get down with like trying to smack people with like cool noodle swords. And I don't know. It's just, I, I one thing that I've enjoyed about like tw- the 2020 so far is I feel like there's a little bit less of a sarcasm around liking the things that you like. There's a little like less like irony and uh, yeah, you know, if the, if the LARPers like LARPing, have at it. <laughs> Unapologetic LARPing is in. Yeah. <laughs> and Hey, if, if you ever want to give it a shot, you know where to find them. Um, I got nothing else. What you have any, anything else that you wanted to get to? Uh, that's pretty much it. I feel like, uh, ending on the LARPing is a good place to end. Yeah. Oh, I, I will say, uh, I did do an interview with, uh, Connor Letourneau from the San Francisco Chronicle. He's covered the, the Warriors. Um, he, he used to work for the Oregonian. Um, I'm going to tack it on the end of this. Um, and it's, it's super, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Connor, Connor and I were hired at the same time at the Oregonian and I've stayed here and he went and covered the second biggest dynasty in NBA history. I guess you can't really say that because the Celtics were pretty good back in like the sixties, but. Uh, uh, okay. We, we all know that doesn't count. <laughs> uh, so, stick, uh, so stick around for that. Uh, Connor's sound is fantastic. My, I had some mic issues. So uh, I mean, nobody needs to hear it more than me anyway. So uh, stick around for that. Uh, I say it at the top of the podcast 
uh, coming in, but we are running a 20% off special at i5corridor.com uh, for to celebrate spring practice. I don't really know what to say on those pages. It's just like in honor of spring practice, we're gonna, but yeah, if, if you've been, if you've been listening to us and uh, want to get access to the written product, uh, you can do that now. Um, and thanks everyone for listening. Uh, we hit six months last week and we had some really good feedback, uh, especially on the podcast. Like, I, I think this is something that, um, I'm probably less confident in because I was trained how to write and, and we don't really get a whole lot of feedback on this. So sometimes it feels like we're, we're just talking into the cloud. So it, it's nice to hear that, uh, that, that people do it and enjoy this aspect of, of what we're doing. And, uh, I I'll say that the, uh, the 20% off can be in honor of the number one LARPing podcast in the St. John's area. See, that's, that's why this guy does what he does. All right. Just thanks for the one. <laughs> All right. Here's Connor. Thanks, everyone. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the I-5 Corridor podcast. This is Tyson Alger joined by an old colleague of mine, Connor Letourneau, uh, former Warriors beat writer, former Oregon State beat writer. I actually, I wanted to talk to you about basketball, but you just wanted to jump right into the college stuff. So, Connor, what the hell is going on with Wayne Tinkle's team? Yeah, um, as, we, as I told you right before we jumped on here, I, I still have kind of an, an an odd fascination with Oregon State hoops. I think I think there's something about your first beat, like your first high level beat. You know, my first real beat out of college was Oregon State basketball. I was number two on football um, at the Oregonian, and I did baseball, but I really had ownership over the basketball beat. And uh, even though they didn't have a ton of following, I took it probably too seriously and uh <laughs> yeah dude i i was unfortunately youtube is forever and there are dozens of videos of you and i doing like pac-12 basketball oh, gosh uh, yes round table we... videos on oregon live that uh um, are very poorly produced thanks to me um and, and uh, we, I, neither of us were comfortable on camera yet probably neither uh, of us were comfortable on camera neither of us really had clothes that fit all that well either like it was just like it's it's a really bad time capsule oh yeah for sure but hey you know i look back on i look back on my two years in the oregon state beat at the oregonian as like grad school almost because i was like right out of college and i was learning a lot in a short period of time and so I don't, I don't worry too much about the quality of my stuff at that time or, or anything. I, I just, I appreciate what I learned. Um, but yeah, I, I got to know Wayne Tinkle pretty well. And I've, I just kind of appreciate him as a person and, and what he's been doing. So I do, I do follow Oregon state hoops pretty closely and, uh, I've just been stunned by how bad they are. I mean, yeah, they made the elite eight last season, and I know a lot of people can say that's a fluke. But bottom line, they still made the elite it's eight. Still, it's the, that's that's still a, something you put like a, a banner up in the rafters for. Like that's that's yeah. still a completely legitimate season. And Wayne Tinkle understandably got a huge extension as he should. I mean, you take Oregon State basketball to the elite eight. That's no small feat. I don't care if it's during a pandemic. I don't care what the circumstances are. That is no small feat. And then to see how epically bad they are this season it just it defy it boggles the mind i mean how can a team go from being that good or you know at least during a short stretch there in the tournament to this bad and uh you know the only real big loss they had was ethan thompson but a lot you know they still have some key players back from that team um you know talking to some people in the program it sounds like this is just a group that does not 
fit, like both on and off the court. Dude, and, and that's like that's why it's been kind of like such a a black college basketball season in Oregon in general too, because like Oregon's a team like that where I mean they they obviously have more talent than Oregon State's able to have, but like just the pieces haven't fallen in place for them like like they have in past years, and so you just get these like super inconsistent efforts, and it, it's just really hard to predict them. They it's should really- Oregon should never lose to Cal yeah. in basketball, at least a Cal uh, 100%. team. That's- as untalented as this Cal basketball team. I'm actually writing about Cal basketball today. Like doing a bigger, I'm doing a bigger picture look at like Mark Fox's tenure. And uh, you know, it's, it's interesting talking to people at Cal because they're really happy and excited about this team. And it's like, okay, sure. Like, have you maximized the potential of this roster, especially given the injuries? Probably, but you still have five conference wins. Yeah. I mean, it's like you shouldn't be that excited about it, you know. It's um, it's interesting with Oregon too because I think it's been like such a kind of like a slow burn for them into being a team that actually like recruits top five guys. That like, like you can like look at this team and be like, they kind of fa- not failed because there's still like Pac-12 tournament to go, but like, like they should be like a tournament team every single year with like the resources that they have, with the coaching that they have, with the arena that they have, like. Like this, this whole, you know, we've, I, we've written about it on the corridor multiple times about like the second half surges that the Altman teams have, but um, this, this is a team that shouldn't have, shouldn't have needed that sort of second half to, to, to uh, end up where they should have been. Well, I think when you're constantly relying on transfers every year, um, there's going to be a, a year here and there where it just doesn't fit. It just doesn't work. I mean, because, uh, you know, basically transfers, grad transfers especially, are kind of mercenaries. And they're, they're not really building, they're not really around long enough to build any real rapport with anyone or become a fabric of the program. They're just there to, you know, get some buckets and, and help you yeah. achieve your goals that season. And, you know, there's going to be, in, the truth is, when Dana Altman gets those guys, he doesn't know much about them. I remember... Yeah even helping you out like with ducks coverage in the Pac-12 tournament and things like that. And and I I just, I just, I just read one of your Dylan Brooks stories from like the 2015 Pac-12 tournament or something. That's funny. Uh, But I remember just talking to Altman and it was really clear that he didn't actually know the players, especially the transfers, um, which is often true in recruiting. Um, so it's nothing really against Altman specifically. It's just, that's just how it is. But you don't, you don't know, actually, you're kind of just, it's a leap of faith. Like hopefully these guys work out and, you know, credit to the ducks, like in in Altman, it generally has worked out, but, um, it's not always going to. And I think that's the problem with Wayne this season is he got all these guys, uh, last off season to plug holes and, you know, transfers guys who came from bigger programs, but hadn't really played at those programs. So you're kind of hoping like, Oh, well, they were good enough to get to that program. You know, if they have more of an opportunity, can they show it? And it's looking like, no, they just, they didn't play at those schools for a reason. Like they're not good. <laughs> so. so, so there's a, there's like two types of NBA writers. The ones that like, if you formally covered college basketball, then you go to the NBA. You have like one type who's like, I can't watch college basketball. The guys can't shoot. Like it's terrible. Like, and you know, from your perspective, you've spent six years watching two of the best shooters in NBA history. So 
is it like like a hate watch sort of thing for you with college basketball? Like like, like what's what's your uh, where do you stand on 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 that? I'll be honest, I don't watch a lot of college basketball. <laughs> I when I talk about Oregon State, I I read about them and I follow along but i don't actually watch a lot of their games yeah um i went to uh the oregon state cal game when oregon state was at berkeley a couple months ago just for fun and i brought my girlfriend and halfway through the game she turned to me and said connor i love you but this is kind of pushing the limits on like the stuff i'm gonna go to with you because I, I bring her to a bunch of random sporting events i've taken her to minor league baseball NHL, a bunch of stuff, and she's had a good time. But that was kind of the limit. It's like, this is really ugly. This is not a good environment. This is just not an enjoyable experience. Yeah. I don't blame her. <laughs> but uh, I, I do feel like it is hard to watch college basketball after being around the Warriors for five-plus years. I mean, the, the Warriors, the way they move the ball, uh, they, they at their best, they play basketball the way it's meant to be played, in my opinion. And they're just operating at such a high level. And then you watch like a lot of college basketball and I'm no, I'm not like a basketball expert in terms of like, I'm not, a, I don't know the game, the level, the same level as a coach or something, Yeah. but I am just watching this and I'm like, why are they, they're just standing around, like move off the ball, set some screens. Like, it's just, what are you doing? And these coaches are making millions of dollars and like running out this, what I think is a subpar product. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah we got gotcha. you we got gotcha. you uh what was your first oh shit moment on the nba beat because for for people who uh who haven't followed your career all, along uh you're from portland you went to jesuit um you uh you interned at the oregonian you worked for the oregonian uh you did like a, a year on the cal beat and then all of a sudden uh you got airdropped into uh the one of the biggest dynasties in nba history <laughs> Yeah, it was a crazy life experience because, like you said, I covered Cal for a year and then, you know, we had a shakeup on Warriors and I was kind of thrust in as the sole Warriors writer for the Chronicle uh, right after they signed or after the Warriors signed Kevin Durant. And so they were coming off that 2016 finals loss to Cleveland and LeBron um, and just signed Durant. And so they're, you know, they're literally a staple on Sports Center every night. They're the biggest show in sports and i'm 25 years old had never covered an nba beat so it was it was a surreal experience but i'll be honest like i felt ready for it and i think i i think a lot of that is i attribute to my time at the oregonian and just covering pac-12 at a high level um yes it's not as intense as the nba in terms of the travel and all those things but beats are all the same to a certain degree i mean they require the same skills you do the same things and so uh, I tell people all the time, yeah, it doesn't. Sure, if you've never covered an NBA beat, it's going to be a transition. But uh, if you've covered high level beats at, uh, in other respects, you're going to be you're going to be fine. So, um, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, the first year, the entire first year was really surreal. I think the biggest adjustment for me was just the travel and like. You have to write, you know. It's a little, it's a little bit out of our cushy Pac-12 footprint, right? Where it was like a couple. <laughs> yeah, weekends, like, you it's know, go, like go spend a January weekend in Phoenix. Like, oh, this. Is it's crazy. like if you're if if your assignment for the day is write like a thousand word feature and do a notebook off practice. Like, okay, cool, I can do that. But then you're like, on top of that, you have to travel from San Francisco to Minneapolis with 
to with a layover and potential travel hiccups and you have to pack and you have to do all these things so it's like writing that thousand word main bar while you're in transit with with spotty wi-fi and then getting to the city and then going and covering practice and writing a, a notebook or whatever what should be like a relatively easy day becomes a hard grueling yeah. day just when you factor in all the other when, stuff. And, 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 and that doesn't even take into account like if you're like delayed or you have a flight canceled or this or that it's like you have to you know like that the newspaper still gets published i guess you know maybe not everywhere these days but the newspaper still gets published still <laughs> cares about its print edition which i'm which i'm proud of we're like one of the last you know uh you know beacons of, of print journalism in, in that respect in my opinion so um I, the, the, this is way accelerating the topic, but you're, how old are you? Are you 31, 32? 31. 31. You and I are similar, I think, in the regards that, like, we both grew up reading newspapers. Like, we, I mean, like, we kind of, like, this is, like, what we wanted to do. And, like, ever yeah. since that I've known you, uh, you have always been, like, the most irrationally confident writer I've ever come across. Like, <laughs> I like, don't know even, what you mean by that. No, well, I mean, like, even when you were younger, it was just, like, you got to the Beavers beat, and, like, that's what you were supposed to do. And then it was, like, you progressed onto the Warriors beat, and it's, like, that's what you were supposed to do. I, mean, I don't know. It just seems like that you went into these things outwardly with a fair amount of confidence. Um, how, at now that you've, at 31, you've progressed to, like, you're an enterprise writer at the Chronicle, like, you've asked, essentially, off of the Warriors beat, which probably would have been, like, your dream sort of thing when, when you were younger coming up, like, like, where do you see yourself at your point in your career, and, and, and maybe, like, how that was, versus, like, how you envisioned it, like, when you were a kid and thinking that, like, you just wanted to be, like, the biggest sports writer out there? That's a great question, and I don't, I don't think I've ever been because you're young. You're young, dude. Like you're you're young. And yeah, you've accomplished a lot. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> rationally confident. I hope. I hope. I hope it's just confidence because I, you know, I do. Oh, I oh, do. Sorry. Think, I, I guess that was probably a wrong adjective. But you were no, no. Like, I think confident is fair. I just. I think it's important to it for any sports writer to be confident with, but also have it backed by like a level of humility. Yeah. Uh, because I always had an awareness of like what my shortcomings were as a writer and what I needed to get better at. Um, but I d definitely did feel ready for every opportunity I've had. And I, I haven't I mean, felt like. Shoot, dude, you showed up to the Oregonian and you wrote like a 2000 word awesome Thomas Tyner feature in like your first week. And I was just like, shit, like this guy's good. Like this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I appreciate that. I mean, but I also struggled on deadline and took way too long to write and all those things. But um, yeah, I think I think for me, it's funny how life works. You 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 set out and you you have certain goals. And what I I, I realize is like, you know, I, I decided to be a sports writer when I was twelve years old, and it's like, what did I know at twelve years old? I didn't I didn't know how the world worked. I didn't I didn't know you know how money worked. I didn't know how like all these things I was going to need to be happy in my life. I just wanted, I liked sports and I liked storytelling and I wanted to pursue that. And, and uh, here I am at 31 having had a pretty uh, tunnel vision focus, I think on my career of being an NBA writer specifically. I, I think it was growing up in Portland, being a Blazers fan, reading Jason Quick and John Canzano and the Oregonian. I wanted to be them. I literally mm. idolize them, like especially quick because he writes, uh, you know, human interest type pieces, stuff that gets at, uh, you know, 
the intersection of sports and society and gets into players' personal lives. And I just found that fascinating and I wanted to be that kind of sports writer. And, um, and so I've kind of approached my whole career from that lens. And, uh, I think one thing I struggled with the past couple of years was, okay, I'm, I'm covering the Warriors for the Chronicle. I am enjoying it, but I'm getting burned out. I'm not as happy as I thought I'd be. Uh, just because you realize that uh, your your career is not going to fulfill you. Um, not to get super existential, but uh, you realize like, you know, yeah, I can accomplish certain things in my career, but unless I have other things figured out, I'm not going to be truly happy. And I've just, I kind of was struggling with that. And I think the pandemic uh, helped me a lot in terms of stepping back and taking the time to, to reassess those things. Because I wasn't traveling last season. I still covered the Warriors, but it was all over Zoom and phone interviews. And so um, I, I basically came to the realization at that time, like I need off the beat for my own mental health. Yeah. I need, I need to get off the hamster wheel because this job at, at, at a certain point feels like you're on a hamster wheel. You're just writing all the time. You're going from city to city. It can, it can be a grind in, in a, in a negative sense. And uh, so I basically went to my bosses. I had a new sports editor and I went to her and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm done. Like I'm done. Like you can, yeah, hopefully you can find another role for me. Cause I'd like to stay here, but I'm done. Like I, I, you need, there's to this guy. Up. He started this thing called the iPod. Uh, you hadn't started it yet, actually. Um, but uh, I, <laughs> I, uh, I literally was like, I'm done. And uh, luckily, my bosses were like, you know, we know what your strengths are. We're going to put you in a in a sports enterprise role. They created the job for me, so I'm very thankful for that. Um, but there was a period there where I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do next because the the goals I had, I realized that um, I didn't actually want anymore. Like. Like I used to think I wanted to be a national NBA writer and I realized I don't actually want that. Um, like it's a ridiculous life. Like it's, yeah. I, I, I think, and, and not that, you know, I, I, I always, because you, Greif, Kyle Goon, a bunch of the Pac-12 writers all advanced onto the NBA. Like I always felt you know? like, oh, I, I always kind of felt like, um, I was like, oh, maybe I want to do that. But I, I think I was always pretty aware that like, I don't think that I would have done well with that type of grind. Like I, I like like playing hockey and, and hanging out with my friends too much, man. Like I, I don't yeah. know how you guys did how you guys did that for so long. I mean, and I always kind of appreciated that you had you seem to have at least as far as much as you could have a decent work life uh, balance. And I'm just, I, I'm just I'm just lazy. That's that's essentially no, the thing. I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think so. I I uh, I think for me, like the Warriors beat was really fun for two years. Uh, and then once you get to the third year, I actually got a, a guy on the beat with me named Wes Goldberg, who's like one of my best friends in life. And having a close friend on the road with me kind of gave me that breath of fresh air and kind of yeah. renewed purpose on the beat. But then he left. And yeah. then when he left, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm like, you would kind of start to feel, I mean, I'll be honest, man, it gets lonely. Like you're, you're on the road. I stayed in a Marriott over a hundred nights a year. Um, you're by yourself a lot. You're in arenas by yourself a lot. You're, it gets to a point where you're just kind of like have this existential question of like, why am I doing this? Yeah. And, like, and it's, I'm, it's, I'm, 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 I'm killing myself to cover this team that I don't really have any personal investment in. Yeah. You know, I can't have a personal investment cause I'm an objective reporter. It's like, 
you know, for me at, at, at its core, I got into this to tell good stories. Like yeah. I, I, the, I never really want, cared about being a big deal. I never cared about like, uh, chasing, you know, like, ch- uh, coattail chasing or, or chasing a, a team that's super relevant. I just wanted right. to tell uh, really in, interesting stories. And uh, that's kind of what I realized when I, I kind of reassessed during the pandemic was, okay, what can I do that's really going to get me back to what I care about and, you know, get rid of some of the stuff that I, I'm not enjoying about the job and focus on the things I'm enjoying. What, what I what we, I came to was a sports enterprise role is the ideal uh, role for me because in this role, I can just focus on the stories I'm passionate about. I'm not writing those injury updates. I'm not, uh, you know, at every game, I'm not traveling a ton, you know, and uh, it's been a lot better for me. Um, You know, I can, I can be around the girlfriend and friends and, you know, not be totally absent. So it's, it's yeah. The, um, that like having, having like a beat partner that you really get along with can like be a, a huge thing. Like I, I, I think my work pro- productivity actually probably, or quality work may have taken a hit after Greif left just because I, one, I really like traveling with the dude, but yeah. two, like he, like he pushed me a lot too. Like, like, yeah. like having, like having somebody that you're discussing stories with and, and like, you know, reading every day and, and competing with, I, I, I think, uh. Um, and, and then especially going from that into like kind of the pandemic isolation and, and then all that stuff too, it was just like, Greif pushed uh, me too, man. I mean, yeah. I wasn't even on the beat, uh, with you guys, but, uh, we came in at the same time and, uh, Greif was obviously operating at a pretty high level. And, um, I definitely, it was good having him around because it definitely pushed me of like, okay, I need to be on my stuff if I want to be at his level. Um, and, uh, it's been, it's been kind of, it was cool seeing him go to the the Clippers beat and then we were on the road together and we'd have dinner occasionally in LA or the Bay and, and, and same thing with Gina Mizell, who I was beat partners with at, on the Beavers beat. Um, it's just kind of been cool to see that uh, progression in our careers and, and be able to share that. It's like you, you kind of have a bond that you can't really have with anyone else because they understand what you've gone through and what, what you needed to do to get to this, to this point. Um, but yeah, I completely agree. And that was something I struggled with on warriors was, uh, I never had a beat partner at all. And I honestly didn't have much support at all. Like I felt like I was on an Island the vast majority of the time, especially during the regular season. And then the playoffs come and the columnists will come around and stuff. Yeah. And it's like, okay, great. But like, <laughs> you know, during the regular season, it's like, you're just expected to do everything. And that can be a lot. And, uh, like I said, having a friend on the beat for a while, really helped um but that was short-lived he was only on the beat for two years and only traveling for a like two-thirds of a season so did did you ever get into um like i you know i was just reading like like the bill or lebron stuff and and bill yeah. and i go way back because he hired me back at the the montana kyman at our montana days it's real uh, to see lebron tweeting about bill the I, I i know and and you know i i don't recall ever you getting into any sort of like thing like that with any of the warriors guys but what's it kind of like constantly dealing with people who have like that type of audience and who like have 
a lot more leverage than you do in, 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 in terms of, of like, you know, like LeBron yeah. could have essentially torpedoed Bill's career if he wanted to. Yeah, you know? that's a good point. And I think that's something I, I was uncomfortable with. Uh, and a part of why I wanted to get off a beat, because the truth is being completely candid here, there is a give and take on a, on a beat like that. Like you're, you're around these guys every day and your career and your work does depend on having a certain level of a relationship with them or rapport yet you have, they have to be willing to talk to you. I mean, if you're covering the blazers and Damian Lillard doesn't want to talk to you, what's the point of you being around? You're I done. Mean, yeah. Yeah. You're done. Like, so you're right. They do have a certain power over your career. I think, I think especially the super high profile guys have an awareness of that. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll take advantage of that. Um, and I've always felt uncomfortable with that uh because i don't want to have to pretend to be someone's friend or or be fake or uh you know i feel like you can read through that in in the quality of your work too like if it's a phony relationship it's you know it's something i i I kind of struggled with my first couple years on the beat and then i got to the point where i was like i'm just gonna do what i want to do and you know go about it the way that feels natural to me and hope everything works out the way it's supposed to work out. I never had anything like what Bill just went through with LeBron, but I did have a run in with Kevin Durant. Uh, It never, he never like blasted me publicly on social media or anything, but we did have a run in 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 the locker room in Phoenix one time. And he, he basically yelled at me and kind of was brandishing his knuckles, almost threatening to like, beat me up and uh my relationship with him after that was not great and uh luckily he you know for me i guess he he did, ended up leaving the team a couple months later you know going to uh going to the nets which um was actually why he was upset because i was basically <laughs> saying i said on a podcast that i i believed that he was going to leave and I, he was going to go to either the nets or the knicks and that he was going to basically go wherever Kyrie chose for them to go and that he was going to follow Kyrie and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, that's what he did. Yeah. Um, but he didn't want that out there at that time and, uh, was very upset with the fact that I had reported that. And so, um, you know, but I don't regret reporting it or, or saying it because I was, I was actually, it was actually on a podcast and I was just asked a question. I just said what I thought and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna censor myself just because, just, yeah. just because I'm, I'm trying to make Kevin Durant happy. Like, um, but unfortunately that, that is a nature of the beast and that's, it's something I don't like about it. And it's, um, that sort of thing is coming a lot more to college athletics too. Like, like, especially with a lot of the NIL stuff, which I'm in favor for, but, um, you got, you have guys being paid to do radio interviews now. Um, you, you have a lot more like selective, like media access. Um, you know, you, you have guys who basically have like, you know, like, who they're going to approve or not. And it's, it's, it's a lot harder to tell stories. And it, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just kind of a, a, a new challenge, I guess, but it's, uh, uh, yeah. yeah I think, I, I think, I, sorry. I, I think that especially like on an NBA beat where you're, you're kind of handed a lot of things like you're handed the stats or handed access. It's really easy to fall into a rhythm where you're just doing what's in front of you yeah. and you're, you're just taught, you know, in the NBA, it's all about like, when did you get that sit down with the big player? And it's like, my thing was like, I can write a good profile on a guy without having a big sit down with him. Yeah. 
like 100%. I'm gonna I'm gonna do some research. I'm gonna contact his parents. I'm gonna contact his high school coach and you know maybe his girlfriend and whatever. And I'm gonna talk to people around them. And I've written a lot of big profiles on guys where I might have three minutes with Steph Curry, but I can write a two thousand word profile on you because I'm talking to the people around you, and people around you can usually say more interesting things. But I think a lot of people lose sight of that and they just think about it like it's all about the access with that player. Yeah. And, and, and like, I, I'm glad you brought that up because like, honestly, like that's like the only thing that I'm surviving on right now because, you know, I, I don't live in Eugene, so I'm not going down to every single press conference and, and, and kind of doing like the daily beat stuff. But like, you know, so far in January and February, I've done two profiles on, on the Oregon staff members by just calling around and because they haven't made them available to us yet. And so it's just like, yeah, you have to like, the, the, you you get roadblocks thrown in your way, but I think almost I think you almost get more creative with the stories that you end up telling when when you don't get that traditional just like thirty minutes sit down. With I mean, I feel like a lot of news writers would hear this and laugh at us, but th- what we're talking about is reporting, and I do yeah. think that sometimes in sports writing, it's easy to lose sight of the actual reporting aspect of it. You know, like you because you kind of get into the hamster wheel of just the, these scrums, and when you do that. You're just writing what everyone else is writing. And and I think, you know, to differentiate your coverage, you need to be thinking outside the box. You need to be going that extra mile, talking to people away from scrums and making phone calls and all those those things. I mean, you're 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 what you just brought up about I five quarter made me think of the fact that like I last summer I, I did a three part series on minor league baseball through the lens of the San Jose Giants. And the part three of that, I did a big profile, Marco Luciano, who's the biggest profile, biggest prospect for the Giants. He's like this 19 year old prodigy from the Dominican Republic. And he doesn't speak English like at all. And so I had it like a five minute interview with him through a translator, but he didn't say anything like literally nothing. I had no information from him and nothing was really out there on him yet. And so I, uh, I basically went through like five layers of scouts to finally find someone who had actually gotten to know him on a personal level in the DR and spent time with him and knew his family. But it took me like five different layers of scouts to get there. And I finally got one guy who could give me real insight. And then he made my story. Yeah. But it took that, you know, like I, I had asked, uh, I had asked you, um, because initially when Lanning got hired, he's from Kansas City. I was just going to fly out to Kansas City and like just do uh, who who the heck is this guy? Um, but then it turns out when you run your own company, finances aren't. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was like, well, I'm just going to start like calling a bunch of people. And I, I, I found like his senior year roster from he went to the school called William Jewell, which is like 1,200 people. And I found I found this photograph of like 15 guys that were on like a summer trip to Europe together. And I was like, I bet you like all those dudes were like pretty close. Cause like, I didn't know who he was friends with. Like in it's the NAIA, NAIA, NAIA school. So it's not like there was like a bunch of like game recaps and stats. And so I just started like cold calling these guys. And I'm like the third guy I found like his college roommate who was also like his tenant because Lanning had bought a house from him and or, or had, yeah. had bought a house and was renting it out. And it's just like, that all happened because UO wouldn't, give me landing to help me out earlier <laughs> right like, like, exactly like, like so it, it definitely ends up working in our favor sometimes like if you know what to to how to find stuff afterwards i mean yeah for sure and i mean those uh 
one source can make a story, you know, and a lot of times it's not the sort the obvious one that you think of. It's not like the actual su- subject. It's that person who, like, I, I did a profile a few weeks ago on Elijah Mitchell, the running back for the 49ers, and I ended up finding a um, a parent in the in the small town in Louisiana that he's from, who his son had died of uh, died of brain cancer, and his younger son was who died was good friends with Elijah. And he also on top of that had been an assistant coach on the football team for Elijah. And, um, apparently Elijah was honoring, was still wearing the wristband, uh, in 49ers games to honor his son. And he was talking about like what seeing that on TV and seeing him wearing his son's wristband in NFL games meant to him. And it's like, that's a story that wasn't out there in any respect. I didn't even know about until I kind of started tracking people down, but like he obviously made that story for me and provided a level of insight into Elijah that I never could have had. And it's just because I started reaching out to people in the town and eventually came across that. Yeah. So what, uh, what do you think about the Blazers? Like, like let's, let's, you're, you're from Portland. You're not on the Warriors beat anymore. Maybe, maybe you can, you can really get it off your chest. How would you fix this team? Would, would you trade Dame? Well, first of all, I was, you know, in Portland actually a couple nights ago. Uh, it was like my last act on the Warriors beat. Our, our new Warriors rider was his first. It was literally his third day on the job, and his second day on the job, he had, he had to go on his first road trip up to Portland and cover a game. And uh, so I went up You're there right. to help. I'll him. go. Yeah, I'll help. <laughs> yeah, when I was like, yeah, free trip to home. Yeah, I'm down. Um, but uh, I went up there, and I like honestly, I followed the NBA very closely. Obviously. I did not know half of that roster that the Blazers <laughs> threw out there. And I was their starting center that night was Drew Eubanks. Yeah. Reynolds Reynolds High's own, who I had covered in high school and then uh, a little Oregon bit at Oregon State. State. And I was like, first of all, he's still in the NBA. Second of all, he's starting <laughs> for the Blazers. Like what? Um but uh yeah, I <laughs> I think I've I, I I talked to my dad a lot about this because my dad is a diehard Blazers fan. And he's upset by everything that's going on. And the the thing is, the Blazers are trying to do something that I don't think has ever been done well. And that is rebuilding on the fly around an injured superstar. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I don't know what other option they have. Because, you know, as long as Lillard wants to be there, I think you got to keep him there. I mean, he is the greatest blazer of all time. I think he's better than Clyde Drexler. I think, I think he's the greatest blazer ever. And I do think that there's some equity that comes with that. There's an emotional attachment that comes with that. I don't think you can get rid of him unless he straight up asks for a trade. And, and, and and you speak with the experience too, of, of having traveled around the NBA and and seeing what NBA cities without a superstar like that are like too. Like I imagine it's probably pretty dead in, in some of those, at some of those franchises. I mean, I don't know what the net worth of the Blazers is right now, but let's say it's around 2.5 billion. I would guess Lillard is responsible for almost 2 billion of that right now. (laughs) Um, I mean, he is like everything. Like he is the franchise. And um, if you get rid of him, you're basically looking at huge financial deficits for at least the next couple of years. And you're just hoping and praying that you can stumble upon another guy like that in the near future. And there are zero guarantees of that. I mean, 
zero. Um, you've seen other franchises try to do that, and they don't find the guy, and they just toil in uh, obscurity for a long time. And, you know, the, the Blazers, that's the last thing they want to happen. And so I do understand why they feel the need to keep him around. But as long as you keep him around, it's, it's going to be really hard to – you know, it's you're gonna be kind of stuck in this no man's land. And I I part of me feels like they should just have a candid conversation with Lillard and be like, Look, we really appreciate your we really appreciate your loyalty, but the best thing for you is gonna to be to move on and the best thing for us is to start over. Um, because right as long as they have him, I just think they're gonna be best case scenario flirting with five hundred. And the yeah. worst thing you can be in sports is five hundred. You wanna be really bad and and putting yourself in a position to stockpile assets or you want to be really good. And, you know, I, I, I don't see a world where they're going to be legitimate contenders um, with, with Lillard going forward. I just don't, I just don't think that's going to happen. It, it's such a tough scenario to navigate. And then you throw in kind of like the ownership instability and, and like the, the, you know, front office, new faces and all that. And, it's just a bummer. Like, it was so cool when, like, they were, you know, that, that roster never really had a chance of, of making the finals or beating that Warriors team. But but the year that they did make the, the Western Conference finals, like, the run up to that was, uh, I I haven't seen Portland like that before. It was so it was so fun in, in sports bars. Like, it was, like, people were talking about it. I, I had never lived in Portland where people were actively talking, like, every day about the sports team in town. Like, it was really cool. Oh, yeah, and I was at the Western Conference Finals, and, like, even though they got swept, there was, like, an excitement in the city, and it was it was really it was really cool to see. I mean, as someone who grew up in Portland, Portland is at its best when the Blazers are relevant and the Blazers yeah. are fun, and because the Blazers mean so much to, <clears throat> to that city. Um, and uh, I, think, I think the first thing the Blazers have to do is they have to figure out the ownership situation because um, it sounds like... Jody Allen is is kind of uh you know not that invested and and yeah it might be a little wishy washy <laughs> from what I've heard I mean I'm not covering the team but um and one thing I've learned covering the Warriors is it's all about leadership from the top down I mean that's really true in any business right I mean <clears throat> when when you have a good CEO when you have strong leadership um, everything else tends to work out and when you don't have good leadership everything else tends to fall apart and the Warriors everything changed for them not when they drafted Steph Curry but when they got a new ownership group led by Joe Lacob in 2010 that's really when everything started to change for them and I think the Blazers need to figure that out and then they can figure out the GM and then they can figure out the coach you know I'm not sure that Chauncey Billups is the long-term answer um they can figure all that out and then you can figure out what to do with the roster but you, you, there's kind of like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it, and the base level is ownership. I uh, I have to imagine that as someone who wanted wanted off the beat to get your you know free time and have a little bit more of a work life balance. I I can't imagine that you're upset that the Warriors are super good this year and are probably going to end up having a deep playoff run that takes up your entire freaking summer. Uh, I'm looking forward to you enjoying your life. I appreciate that, man. And uh, I've I've gotten that question of like, are you going to regret getting off the beat when they win a title in June? I'm like, I don't care at all. Like, dude, I, you you know what's really fun? Watching sports at home or in a bar with a drink and not having to fucking work. <laughs> I I've gotten 
I, I got nosebleeds recently to a like a paid for nosebleeds to a Warriors game and and had a blast. Like yeah. had a couple of beers. Like it, and I kept turning to my friends, being like, "This is so fun, not having to write right now. Like this is just it's you, you experience it in a different way." I'm looking forward to having, like. Not, I wouldn't say I'll ever be a Warriors fan, but having just my NBA fandom back, you know, yeah. in a different way. And the truth is, like, I'm, I feel like I'm in a best case scenario situation because if I want to go like travel during the playoffs and experience that, I can. Yeah. Like, I, I can just tell my bosses, hey, I, I want to, our, our writer, our Warriors writer's name is CJ. Hey, I want to join CJ in the Western Conference Finals. I, I want to go to this city and, and, and be there and, and write and be a secondary guy for him for a few days. Like they would let me do that. And so I can still have that experience and stockpile of the Southwest and Marriott points when I need them. Um, <laughs> but I kind of have uh, some say in that, which is nice. Like I don't have any responsibility really to the Warriors in the way that I used to. Did uh, I, I, I was going to wrap things up, but I just thought of, thought of something different. Did, uh, did Clay ever give you any like extra access or love just because of the Oregon connection? Yes, actually. Um, uh, I had a really good relationship with Clay. Um, he is probably my favorite person I've ever covered. Like, Clay is exactly what you think he is. He's awesome. complete, really down to earth, great dude. The type of dude that you would grab a beer with, you know, that we could hang out with. <clears throat> and, um, you know, he, as you know, he's, he's from the Portland area, grew up in Lake Oswego. We, we grew up with some of the same people. Like, I had friends who went to middle school with him. He actually would have gone to my high school and been in my class at Jesuit, but he moved to uh, he moved to Orange County in eighth grade. His older brother went to Jesuit for two years, and his older brother is best friends with this guy named Seth Tarver, who um, was the star basketball player at Jesuit when I was there and ended up playing at Oregon State and playing overseas. Seth now uh, works for Clay. He runs their foundation. And Seth has been a phenomenal resource and source for me um, for a bunch of bigger Clay stories. Like when Clay returned from the two and a half year absence earlier this season, I had to turn around a quick piece looking back on his the past two and a half years and how he handled it. And I just called up Seth and Seth got me Clay's brother. And I did like a piece on how his roommates, who are Seth and his brother, kind of handled those two and a half years and helped him get through it. And it was an angle that no one else had, obviously. And I, I'll i be honest, I had that connection through Jesuit and Hell yeah. Yeah. through Portland. So, Yeah, I'm, I'm not getting a whole lot of help from uh, the Alaska athletes who have made it big yet. So, uh, <laughs> the Carlos <laughs> Boozers and the Drajan yeah. Langdons and yeah. the Mario Chalmers of the world? There, there was a, there was an Alaskan on uh, the fourteen ducks, Jaleel Abdul Bassett. Uh, I remember he him. A, he, he was a decent. You did decent a good player. piece on the murder of his mother, and yeah, Angola. yeah, he uh, he he's he's come a long way. Um, it, gosh, I was about to make a real terrible transition and saying like it's been nice to see how long uh, the way that you've come along, but. Uh, <laughs> This has been a lot of fun, man. I, I, I appreciate catching up. I, I, I hate that it's been a while since we've caught up, and this is the most we've talked in a while. But uh, oh, now that you uh, have a little bit of free time, uh, don't be a stranger next time you come around. For sure, man. I mean, I come up to Portland relatively often. The fam's all up there. Um, I'm planning to come up a lot, uh, for an extended period this summer. Let's hang out. And, dude, I got to say before I get off, you know, I honestly am really proud of you. I'm really impressed with what you're – doing i know what you're doing is not easy i know building your own thing is hard and it's 
probably frustrating and scary at times. Um, but I have a lot of respect for it. I, based off, you know, every conversation we've had on this podcast about journalism and stuff, I've definitely had those thoughts myself of like breaking off and, and doing my own thing and building my own company or media outlet. And I haven't because in part, because it's scary and overwhelming <laughs> and uh, you're doing it. So, well, I, I just, I just, I just got lucky that all you really talented people left Portland and it, and it and opened up a, uh, <laughs> nothing against the people in Portland, but there's definitely a need there. Like oh. you know, there's, there's definitely a need for good sports writing there. Well, I appreciate that all buddy. And I'm looking forward to seeing what stories you come up with, uh, with the new gig. And, uh, I think TNT is channel 732 when you need to watch, uh, playoffs when you're back up here. Everyone follow his work at the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, really great stuff. Thanks, man. Thanks. Dope, dude. Thanks a lot. Dude, that was a lot of fun. We, I. You're listening to the I-5 Corridor, hosted by Tyson Alger and Aiden Schneider.